Well, I'm David. I'm an organist. I'm Ian, and I'm a priest. And this is All Things Right and Musical. So here we are in July of 2021. And remind me when this pandemic actually started? Mar- middle of March 2020. Yeah, okay. So it's well, been... it, it, it started in terms of yeah, like really suspended life operations. Exactly. Or um, what was that ominous quote that I read like in, in January or February? Significant disruption to daily life, I think is what yeah. I read. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that definitely happened and continues to happen. Yep. So I guess we thought that today might be a good time just to sort of take stock of where we are um, with liturgy and music. As we, I've heard people call this um, late stage pandemic times. Um, <laughs> I, I hope that that's true. Um, right. I mean, the vaccine is definitely rolling out in the United States um, and it's rolling out in many countries to different degrees. Um, but, you know, it doesn't end things suddenly when, when the vaccine starts going out. And in fact, right now we're all seeing a, a, a rise in sort of every metric that you can measure in connection to the Delta variant. So just, yeah, it's def- yeah, definitely not over, I guess, is the, is the headline. Right. And just like the, um, you know, just like it was before, it's not, it's not universal everywhere. Right. 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 So there are some places and, and this is illustrated perfectly clearly between you and I, right. Mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. that, um, Georgia has, has long been bad in some ways, um, especially because of the Atlanta area and it's relatively good right now. Um, and Missouri is seeing some of the worst spiking in the country. Right. Yeah. Missouri is sort of, um, in national headlines a little bit more than, than you would like to see for something like this. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, all that is to say, you know, things are not great at the moment. And yet, you know, what kind of amazes me is we shut down hard in Mm. March, April, May, and June, I think. Mm. Um, we were, we were just shut down we were actually prevented from going into our church buildings and granted we didn't know everything about how this disease spread. Um, we did, we did know that kind of, um, shutting things down and staying home would probably be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And it was, and sure enough, you know, once we opened back up, um, the coronavirus started spreading more readily. Um, and yet, you know, we continue, even though, even though the, the, even though the rate of spread is so much higher than it was during the time that we were shut down, we just continue to remain open. <laughs> yeah. You know, people continue to, to come to our churches. People continue to do more and more things. Um, dioceses have throughout the Episcopal church have continued to, uh, as a whole have continued to lessen restrictions. And it, yeah, obviously it's different, different policies are in place in, in different different dioceses, different churches. So it is hard to generalize, but I think, um, the trends have been one of, of lessening restriction overall. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, I mean, it's difficult, right? Because, um, 
because one of the things that's becoming clear is even even with the delta variant which is worrisome right mm-hmm. the 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 risks are not evenly spread right and we're at a point now where the vaccine is more or less available to anyone over the age of 12 who wants it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like no one's having trouble scheduling an appointment if they want to get vaccinated for the for the majority of unvaccinated people it's because they don't want to be vaccinated with the recognition that there are some for whom they can't get the vaccine. Right, right exactly. And that's kind of that's the kind of the, the argument for, you know, if you can get vaccinated, you, you really should because there are people who can't. Right, yeah. right. Um, but it's very, in light of that, it's very difficult at a, at a, parish level or diocesan level or community level, whatever it is, it's very, very difficult to shut everything down again when the majority of the risk is borne currently by people who, who just don't want to be vaccinated. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, because there's no way other than encouraging them to get vaccinated. There's no way to mitigate that risk. And, for the most part, shutting things down doesn't, you know, in in some ways, I think a lot of people feel like you would be punishing the people who are vaccinated Mm -hmm. for whom life can kind of go on, maybe not exactly as normal, but with, with sort of minimal restrictions and interruptions. Right. Closer to normal. Yeah. I mean, all of these, all of these kind of calculations are difficult to navigate and every institution is having to negotiate this stuff, you know, not just the church. Yeah. But um, no, I think you're right. Like uh, when it comes to vaccinated versus unvaccinated people, and especially with children who can't be vaccinated yet, mm-hmm. you know, how do you how do you navigate those waters of of getting children? Um, well, uh, not getting children, but um, holding worship in a way that that children and families could conceivably attend and feel safe right. about it. Right. Um, and then by the same token. Um, uh, rehearse, rehearse, uh, children in a choir (laughs) and, and maybe, you know, maybe they, uh, yeah, maybe they just need to be on their own for a while. But that's, that's something I'm having to negotiate now is how do we get, how do we get our chorister program up and running with a mix of, um, kids who are vaccinated and kids who are not. Yeah. And what's, I mean, what's really fascinating about this. So, um, I have to be careful saying this because it could get me in trouble. Um, and, so I actually in, in when we when we were starting to to resume sort of more normal operations, I, I did some digging and looking at the numbers and, and um, comparing um, infection rate, comparing hospitalization rate, comparing death rate from um, from COVID uh, and, and from the, the sort of seasonal flu, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did this for, for people under the age of 12. Um, and the reason I did this is because I, 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 have, I have no... I mean, like a lot of people, I think the reason we talked about sort of shutting down completely, even though that, that didn't necessarily do as much as we had hoped or wasn't perfect, but we have so little to compare this to. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to be clear that I'm not I'm not one of those um, pandemic denialists who's going to say that COVID is just the flu, right? Like that's clearly not the case. But 
I wanted something to contextualize this with, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. what does we know that the risk is much less for for youth and children, right? Right. But but how much less are we talking about when when it's a it's a deadly global pandemic? So I compared the um, the rates again of infection, of hospitalization, and of death between this and a, and a sort of typical, roughly average, maybe slightly worse than average, uh, flu season, with the most recent numbers that I could find, and found that the flu was at least twice as bad for people under 12 in terms of infection rate, in terms of hospitalization and in terms of death. Mm -hmm. So when people say, and I did that because when people say it's a lower risk for kids, I wanted to know what we're, what sort of we're talking about, but, but viewing it and seeing that it's, that it's generally about half as bad as a typical or maybe slightly worse than typical flu season. I don't know. Like, Obviously, you don't want to ignore anything and you don't want to just say, throw our hands up and say, well, there's nothing we can do, so let's just charge into the breach. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we always have risks, right? And we always have risks that we deem acceptable. Um, if it's that if it's that much milder in youth and children than uh, than a typical flu season, is there a point at which we say, you know, even for them, life can more or less return to normal with the recognition that people who have sort of additional risk factors should probably take more precautions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and it is and it isn't. I mean, I think there's still things that we don't know about. Um, you know, what's been dubbed long COVID in children. Um, there may be, there may be um, effects of this that, that materialize years after infection. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that there's, there's certainly plenty that we don't know. Um, and what we do know about long COVID in, in adults, I think should give us pause about, you know, uh, minimizing, minimizing risk. Um, we sound like, it sounds like an epidemiology podcast now. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. And I guess I presume that like the, the kind of analysis that you did preceded the real dominance of the Delta variant. Cause I think that changes the calculation somewhat. Yeah. I mean, quite, quite possibly. Although, um, I, I don't, I don't know that that's, I don't know that for sure, because the, the, the main difference for the Delta variant seems to be in transmissibility and, and, you know, how contagious it is mm -hmm. with, with not significant differences in terms of hospitalization and, and death rate. Yeah. Well, and, but again, I mean, it's not when you start we're sort of thinking this through as we go along. I right? know. And when you start talking about the death rate in children, I mean, that's just a terrifying thing. No, I know. Children should not die. I mean, right. yes, unfortunately some children will die of the flu, but this is, you know, this is something else. And, and, 
as much as we no. can manage it. Obviously, we want to. It is, and I don't. I, and I don't. Again, I don't mean to say I don't. I don't want to just throw our hands up in the air and say because we're we're ready to be done with this. That means we can ignore it and 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 just be okay with loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's. I, I don't know. It's worth thinking about what we do normally, right? Mm-hmm. And what risk we are comfortable living with. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And I, I've, I've been, I've noticed that I've been a little bit more conservative in terms of, um, managing the risk than, um, a lot of people around me typically have been. Um, and that is something to consider. Um, there's a really interesting, so I'm, I'm a big fan of this podcast, um, that I've been listening to lately. It's called the uncommon place. Okay. And it's these two guys who do like Christian philosophy. Um, and I just find it really interesting to listen to. Uh, and they introduced me to, um, the South Korean philosopher named Byung-Chul Han. Um, who's a, just a really interesting, um, has some really interesting perspectives on, on modern life and the, the neoliberal achievement society, sort of what he terms it. And he had an article recently called the tiredness virus. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, in that article, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to quote him here today. Health becomes the highest goal of humanity. The society of survival loses a sense of the good life. Even pleasure is sacrificed at the altar of health, which becomes an end in itself. And they, apparently he's a smoker. Cause he says the strict ban on smoking also expresses the mania for survival. Pleasure has to give way to survival. The prolongation of life becomes the highest value in the interests of survival. We willingly sacrifice everything that makes life worth living. So when, when I read a passage like that, I mean, I do think about exactly what you're talking about. I mean, at what yeah. point, at what point is, um, trying to achieve zero risk, yeah. keep keeping us from things like, um, in-person worship and, organ and uh, organ and choral music in my case are just choral music and, and, and congregational singing right. um, in, in a lot of these places. Right. And, and so because this is, so it's the novel coronavirus, right? It's mm-hmm. something entirely new mm-hmm. and it carries with it and something that's entirely new for all of us because we, none of us have lived through a global pandemic. So we're, we're sort of thinking this through on the fly and, and thinking through our priorities. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, I, I think the natural tendency in our society is to say no loss is acceptable. And I, and I, and I agree with that, I think to an extent, right? Except, except in practice, because if no loss is acceptable, then we literally cannot do anything. (laughs) That's right. Well, even, I mean, even staying home is, is risky. I mean, Saturday mornings, um, we know that there's like a rise in um, bagel slicing related injuries mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in people's houses. So actually, sure. I'm I'm talking to you with a Band-Aid on my thumb. I uh, I ordered a new Apple Corer because our other one gave up the ghost. Uh-oh. And I was trying to figure out like why I couldn't store this in the drawer. And I apparently put my finger on the blades of this one. This one has blades. They're actually yeah. sharp. I don't think my old one was sharp. That's part of the problem. Part of why the old one broke maybe. Um, uh-huh. But uh, I... I um, inadvertently like slightly cut my own thumb just um just in the last 10 minutes so yeah i mean injury and illness and um accidents 
um, are certainly uh, just part of the reality of living and can, can really happen to you at any time. There are epidemiologists who say we might be living with this for years or maybe forever. Right? I mean, I think I think the really interesting it'll be nice to declare the pandemic over, but I can't do that. I mean, I think I would trust the World Health Organization who declared the pandemic um, begun to right. be the ones to say, yes, it's over, which doesn't mean that it wouldn't be circulating, um, you know, everywhere to a, a low level, um, right. potentially everywhere, but that by and large, the transmissibility was sort of winding down and, and the infection rate was, was low enough everywhere that it could be declared that way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the, this, the, my hopes for, for the way that this would end in um, March of 2020, I mean, I really, I really hope that we would, uh, defeat the thing by staying home and shutting down and then uh, we could come back by Easter. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's not, that's not the way that this works. There is no end point. There is no clear end point, certainly not on the time frame that yeah. we, that we want it to end. Right. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, it, it becomes an ethical dilemma, right? It becomes this, this sort of uh, calculus that we have to perform with what risk is acceptable and, and what's not, and, and what are the things that we're willing to, to take on that risk for. And I just, I, I don't think we're, I don't think we're well equipped to do that to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we've, like so many other things, we've managed to politicize that calculus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and, and by so doing, manage to, to sort of boil it down to its extremes, where some people say absolutely no risk is acceptable, and some people say we've just got to live our lives, man, uh, never restrict anything ever again. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, what is the... What is the backlash from this going to be like? Because um, you know, uh, maybe maybe with the benefit of, of hindsight, we could say, um, you know, the the lockdowns in March and April, you know, they they prevented um, the the rapid rate of spread of this thing and saved you know this many lives. I, I mean, I think to some some extent we already know that, mm-hmm. um, but I'm sure that there are other experts who would say, um, you know. Obviously, we couldn't stop the spread of this thing, so the lockdowns really didn't amount to anything. I don't believe that that's actually true. Right. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're, you're definitely going to hear arguments on both sides. Right, right. And I think the salient question for from a church perspective is, what what level of risk mitigation is a community going to put up with? And for what length of time before dissolving completely? And what level of risk mitigation is worth the loss to what we would consider essential elements of our liturgy, right? Yeah. So, so for example, for the longest time, uh, we didn't at my church offer the chalice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At all. Mm-hmm. 
um, there was no no wine distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing that that was we, a diocesan guideline. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, we we now offer it, and we have plenty of people who don't receive it, um, and that is perfectly all right. And I try to make it clear that that is perfectly all right. Reception in one kind is reception of the fullness of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. But we have people in our community that were absolutely no longer willing to forego that portion of their uh, of of our communal piety, right? Right. That were no longer willing to forego partaking in the blood of Christ. That's a that's a that's a difficult thing, and I don't I, I don't I'm not even claiming that we made the right decision. But I think that we made the right decision for our community because we had people for whom that was a necessity, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true with congregational singing, which is not universally done else everywhere. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is kind of, that's really good to point out actually that, um, even at the baseball game where you might've begun by singing the national anthem, um, that's changed during my lifetime. Like people don't sing anymore. You, you let the soloist do it and you just kind of take a back seat. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. you're, you're standing up, um, yeah. with your hand over your heart. If you're, if you're a good American, like I am. Um, but you're right. Yeah. That, that in our society, the places where you sing with, with everybody around you are f- few and far between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So Fourth of July was uh, fell on a Sunday this year, and I um, I promise I won't take us too far off the track into this into these muddy waters. That's okay. Let me just put in a quick plug for our uh, our Independence Day episode um, on the podcast feed. And w- w- there was a, a a parishioner that we had who who came to us uh, came to me and said, "Can we sing America the Beautiful?" Um, because I had selected hymns. I I did select a couple of hymns from the national song section. I did try to make sure that they are actually hymns. They are actually addressed to God. Oh, that's interesting. Um, because that's the sort of one criteria I have, especially, I mean, especially when July 4th falls on a, on a Sunday, I, um, I'm a little more willing to incorporate songs you know from the national song section just because it is actually the day mm-hmm, right and right. i would feel we would feel comfortable doing the same with a saint's day for example mm-hmm. um incorporating a hymn that alludes to the fact that it's that saint's day mm-hmm. even if we're not celebrating it on the um on the sunday itself or using that saint's collect as the collect of the prayers of the people anyway there are liturgical keys that we would we would feel comfortable using if the day actually falls on a Sunday, and I'm, I feel the same about national songs to an extent. But my line in the sand, which again I don't claim is the right one, is it has to be a song to God. It has to be actually about God, mm-hmm. talking about asking for God's blessing or God's guidance for this country. So that was my criteria. And God bless America doesn't do that. I mean, I know it's not in the hymnal. Um, so no, I'm, I guess I'm not thinking of God bless America. What hymn am I thinking of? Um, America, the beautiful. Uh, okay. The back of the hymnal, it is actually called national songs. Is that right? It is. So yes. not, yeah, that's an interesting distinction. Not, not hymns. And so you were thinking of, um, my country tis of thee or, or which one? 
Yeah, she, so she asked, I had chosen um, God Bless Our Native Land, mm-hmm. 716, mm-hmm. because it is a hymn, mm-hmm. right? Um, in that it is, it is asking for God's blessing. I have, um, but I was asked by a parishioner if we could instead sing hymn 717, My Country Tis of Thee, because it's to the same tune in a different key. Um, but more familiar words. But anyway, the only reason I bring this up is what she said to me is she wanted to sing that song because she grew up singing it. And the question she asked me is, where else do we get a chance to sing that? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and that is kind of that dynamic of like, where has corporate um, amateur singing uh, gone in our society? I mean, the church is one of the very, very few places um, that's left. I mean, I, I can't, I'd be hard pressed to think of another situation where you might gather with, um, people that you don't live with and sing, sing a national song like this. Right. Yeah. And I do, I mean, I've, I very much do recognize that, that dilemma. Um, I think, um, as, as circumstances fall, I'm typically away from my parish on July 4th. This year I was present and, um, boy, was I a stick in the mud. We we didn't sing a single one. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, I mean we just followed the propers and it was just a normal Sunday, um, mm-hmm. with a with a concluding collect for the prayers of the people. Um, I just yeah I just wasn't I wasn't feeling at all this year the pressure um, that I felt previously to do something like that. Yeah, and and I I've been places where there's no pressure to do that. I've been places where there's extreme pressure to yeah. do that. Um, but my answer would be, and obviously this year it wasn't possible. Um, I think it, I think it p- potentially could be possible very soon in this diocese would be to have a sort of patriotic, you know, song sing. I was going to say hymn sing, but you pointed out these are songs, yeah. have a patriotic song sing immediately after the liturgy, you know, play a short organ voluntary, let people kind of come up around the organ, anybody who wants to, um, and then call out, you know, uh, from the, from the number of songs that are here, or, or maybe you even have a a song booklet that includes some things that are not like God bless America. And, and, you know, why not? If people, if people want to sing that stuff, um, and it's meaningful to them to do it that day or whatever day, you know, whether it's July 4th or not in the church, um, I would be game for that. I think that would be, that'd be fine. Mm -hmm. There is something, there is something jarring to me about, um, kind of, you know, with, with a few, with a few opportunities that you have for hymns in the liturgy, Mm-hmm. Um, to to make it something other than something tied into the propers and and the collect for that service, uh, if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, but I but I think that we we do that sometimes, right? Um, well, I, I mean, I think you and I might be in different situations because uh, we don't we don't really take the permission to replace any of the lessons or the co- or, or the collect of the day, even when a major feast day falls on a Sunday. We, we don't do that in, in my parish. No, and, I, and I'm not suggesting doing that either, but, um, but we include notes, uh, you know, whether it's using the, a Saint's Day Collect um, as the concluding collect for the prayers of the people, or, um, you know, including a hymn that reflects a, a, a particular celebration, even if you're not talking about re- replacing the propers. So for, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, 
But if there's a particularly meaningful saint or, um, you know, like Reformation Day comes up mm -hmm. and you... Um, you decide to sing a particular Reformation hymn. Like we do, we already do some measure of things to encapsulate things that are not strictly speaking the reason for our for our worship and our celebration on Sunday. That is true. Right? So maybe I'm maybe I am a fuddy duddy for not wanting to do. I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that you are, and I'm not well, trying to pick a fight about this. Well, no, um, I, I certainly, I certainly don't feel like we're fighting. But I, I do think, I do think it's important to raise that. Um, and I've heard, I've heard this said out loud recently, actually, that the organist, like the music, is what gets to bear the brunt of of um, July Fourth on a day like that. That, sure. You know, you don't have to preach about it. You don't have to change the lessons. Yeah. You don't. You don't even necessarily need to do like a. Um, and an Independence Day related concluding colic to the prayers of the people that, you know, you can just replace all the hymns with patriotic songs and then people will be satisfied. And I feel like that does a real disservice to, um, to the, to the role of the music in the liturgy. I mean, talk yeah. about, talk about not being partners. Um, if, if the priest of the parish says, oh, well, we just need to do all patriotic hymns that day. Um, that is kind of putting the onus of whatever liturgical celebration just solely on the music and not on any other aspect. Yeah. You, you don't have to respond to that. I just think, I just think it's important to name that that's something that happens. No, it is. It is. I, I, I think that happens. I think that happens a lot. Um, it's not necessarily the only way that bears the brunt, right? Because, you know, every year around July 4th, we hear, we have people talking about, don't use the independence collect, independence day collect, use the collect for, um, for the nation. Mm -hmm. Um, well, where are you going to use that at the liturgy? You're not replacing the, the proper collect for the, of, of the day. But um, you could though, I mean, according to the rubrics and the calendar and the way that independence day is listed, in the prayer book, you you theoretically could replace the collect of the day with, I mean, I guess by the letter of the book, you'd have to do it. You'd have to replace it with the Independence Day collect, which is the one that people have some are, are eager to suggest an alternative for. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, so that's, I mean, that's one way in which I think people do shift that elsewhere than the music. But you're right. I mean, it, it, it there is there is a sense in which it's it tends to be the music that has to bear the weight of that load mm -hmm. right yeah which is different than say christmas <laughs> right when you know the whole liturgy is about christmas oh and also the music is about christmas too right you know that makes sense to me um yeah it, it does feel it does feel very disjointed when it's like oh we're having kind of a normal church service but also kind of not right. and i get it like it's a hard it's a hard question i mean um, most, I, I'm, I'm, I feel safe in saying most Episcopal churches, uh, have an American flag at the front, if not elsewhere in the nave, you know, there is kind of a, there is kind of a, a very real expectation of, yes, you know, the, the vestigial state church kind of mm -hmm. raises its head on this day and right. in our church calendar with how Independence Day is weighted, yeah. um, which is a sort of awkward position for, Episcopal churches that are not in the United States. I mean, I, I, right. I don't know that they necessarily have any, have any real need to observe Independence Day. Right. Um, anyway.
Yeah, I, I, I just, it, I think it's, it, it's just interesting, especially talking about the sort of loss of communal singing elsewhere, that this is the year that I got that question, you know? Well, yeah, just the loss of communal singing everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it. Um, like, where else are, where else is is anyone going to sing that song? Yeah. So that's something we need to keep tabs on. I mean, it's something sure. like as we, as we come out of this, um, yeah, just, just sort of acknowledging like the church is one of the last bastions of communal music making yeah. um, for people who don't make music anywhere else in their lives. Right. And, and that we've shut that down now for, for in many places for over a year. Yeah. Um, and, and, Think about the loss that goes along with that, and how how long are we willing to accept that risk, in the name of mitigating other risks, yeah, right? Yeah. And again, I'm not I'm not suggesting that the solution is no risk mitigation whatsoever, just go back to normal. But I I do think the I do think the answer is sometimes more nuanced than we make it in one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. Because people tend to say either no risk is acceptable or we can't we we can't mitigate any risk anymore mm-hmm. right i don't know it's I just, all... i've just been thinking a lot about the loss of music and yeah. and what that means for our churches no it's important it's important to keep to keep tabs on that and to and to navigate that as we as we start to emerge more and more and yeah, and and learn learn how to collectively um, live with a certain a certain amount of risk around this virus. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of All Things Right and Musical. If you've enjoyed this episode about where we are at the stage in the pandemic, and also uh, related questions of congregational singing and patriotism, we hope you will tell us about it. You can find us on the web at rightandmusical.org. That's spelled R-I-T-E and musical.org. You can also follow the hosts and the show on Twitter. A special thanks to our generous patrons who support this show on Patreon. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.